Hey, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Hannah and I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. So the year before my 30th birthday, I made a list of 30 things that I wanted to do before I turned 30. I think I made it through like 20, 25 of them, so not so bad. It was stuff like making a cake and going to a new national park and learning how to do handstands. One of the things that I didn't get to was to learn how to play the Titanic theme song on the piano, My Heart Will Go On, Celine Dion, if you know what I'm talking about. So growing up, my sisters and I took piano lessons. I was quite a bit younger than them, and they were able to play songs like the Titanic theme song and um, A Whole New World by by the Aladdin movie, and I was always super jealous of that. So I was like, I'm going to be able to play this song, Redemption. Didn't happen. However, this last January, I decided, you know what, I think I do want to move forward with that and to start taking piano lessons. So I found a teacher nearby, and every week now on Mondays, I go to piano lessons, and it's been like the funnest part of my year which I suppose during all the stay-at-home stuff, maybe that's not hard to, to achieve at this point, but it has been super fun to, to learn this, or relearn this, this instrument. After my first lesson there, I remember getting back into my car and just like erupting in giggles. I had never had that experience before. I like couldn't contain myself. I was just like cracking up, like so excited. I think John mentioned a couple of weeks ago a soul giggle, and it was definitely just a soul giggle that happened. I had never had that experience. So I think I was doing the right thing. I think I was on the right track by pursuing piano. So one of the things that piano is teaching me is that when I practice, I make progress, if you can imagine that. It's very clear. Not very many things in life are that cut and dry, but with piano lessons, it's like the weeks that I practice, I can see progress, and the weeks that I don't, I don't. And my piano teacher is very gracious with this, and and he's very kind and forgiving, but I I love that feeling of, of getting better at something every week. I love being able to actually make noise that sounds something like music. And so I'm motivated to to keep going with my practicing. After the first few lessons, I was moving from like my right hand to playing with my left hand to then trying to play with both of them at the same time. And it was very hard, (laughs) especially when it got to like playing my right hand at a certain speed and then starting to play my left hand at like a slower speed. I literally could not get my fingers to do it. It was like, like, is it patting your head and rub, rubbing my tummy? I like had no muscle memory for it. I was just stuck. I was willing my brain, like, right hand, do this, fingers, do this, and I could not get it. But like any good piano teacher, we broke it down note by note, and he gave me a few exercises and practices to, to, to work on that would help me kind of develop that muscle memory. And sure enough, I was starting to be able to play both hands at the same time at different speeds. Amazing. Practicing. There's new challenges with with that every week, but I'm seeing progress and it's just totally fun and and motivating. I'm hoping to talk to Chelsea about maybe getting in the worship band one of these weeks. Maybe you'll see me up there. I don't know. Probably not. Today we are including concluding our teaching series on the letter uh, to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. Over the past five weeks, we've explored aspects of this new way of living that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live out. 
they, they too were learning a new instruments of sorts. They were called to make this new kind of music with their lives. And it was going to take some practice to start to figure that out. First, we looked at how the gospel shifts our mindset. The Philippians needed to practice seeing themselves and others and their circumstances as God saw them from God's perspective in Christ. Even though things look grim as they did to the Philippians, the gospel is unstoppable. God will repurpose every heartache and every pain for for their good. Another big theme we saw was humility. On the cross, Jesus showed us that the way to go high is actually to go low through self-giving love. We explored what obedience means, how it can be kind of a tricky word, especially in our culture, but that when we know the one who we are obeying, when we know that that person is worthy, obedience can become a joyful surrender. And then last week, Dr. Nijay Gupta came and and spoke with us about becoming friends of the cross and how the cross of Christ invites us to, to look again at life from God's perspective. What are we chasing after and what really matters? So it's been a pretty like power packed few weeks. And today we're going to be wrapping that up, looking at chapter four. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles or scroll through your Bibles to find Philippians chapter four. And we'll see that as Paul is closing his letter, he urges the Philippians to take everything that he's been writing about, talking about that they've seen in his life, to take all of that and to start putting it into practice, to put it into practice. The passage we're going to read is is a little long, so bear with me, but follow along in your Bibles or the scripture will be on the screen as well. This is from Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And here's the verse we're focusing on today. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace of God will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need or for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay, so first of all, how would you like it if your pastor called you out in the middle of a sermon and used you as the the point that she was making? I got to imagine that Euodia and Syntyche were feeling a bit exposed, but I don't think that Paul was just bringing to the surface some sort of trite uh, circumstance, but Paul would have been addressing this because it was, it was uh, compromising the unity of the church as a whole. We can imagine that these women played prominent and influential roles in the Philippian church. What I love is that Paul holds space for this, this amazing paradox. So he identifies some, some problematic things that he sees going on in, in their behavior. And he still calls these women beloved, dear friends, co-workers in the gospel and, and held by God. They're written in God's book of life. He doesn't pick sides and he doesn't even give like specific guidance for, for what reconciliation looks like. But he urges the church as a whole to come alongside them to see the bigger vision at stake, unity in the gospel mission. Then Paul moves on to another pastoral moment. The Philippians were facing some less than ideal circumstances. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. They were being persecuted, mocked by their neighbors because of this new way of living. Their leader was in prison. In a very real sense, it didn't seem like things were going very well for them. And yet, once again, Paul invites them into this paradox. It's, yes, you are experiencing very real reasons to be afraid and troubled and discouraged. And I'm telling you to celebrate, to rejoice, to pray and to trust that God is at work beyond what you can see. Turn that anxious energy into prayer, into faith. The Lord is near. God hasn't forgotten about the Philippians. He sees and he cares. And Paul is encouraging them to rest in that. And then we're at verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So how many of you are familiar with this passage? Unfortunately, I can't see you raising your hand, so you'll need to use the Facebook comments and, and let me know if this is a familiar passage to you. I, whenever I, I hear this passage, I am taken back to the hallway and the upstairs of my parents' uh, house, the house that I grew up in, and my sister walking out of her room, which was right next to mine, wearing this like early 90s graphic tee that said whatever on the top, and then it had Philippians uh, 4.8 written in kind of mix-matched font. I think we have a picture that you're going to see of that. Whenever I hear this verse, honestly, my mind kind of associates it with this like, oh yeah, that's nice for a t-shirt. That's like a nice idea, kind of trite saying type thing. But the cool thing about learning or about preparing for a message is that it sort of forces you to like dig a little deeper into some of those things that I might normally just kind of gloss over or something that I've heard so many times that I don't really catch the gravity of it. And so these past few weeks, I've really been captivated by the invitation that's here in this verse. That every day there is this 
God reality of goodness, of truth, of substance, and, and of beauty that we always have access to. Even as we are so often tempted to just kind of skim the surface of our lives. Part of being gospel citizens is to daily step into that God reality so that we can see God's light and truth and goodness all around us. It's there, but we have to actively learn to see it and to pray for eyes to see. Paul is quick that, to say that this new way of living takes practice. It's not just something that happens. It would have been pretty remarkable if I showed up at my first piano lesson and I could just like play Mozart, right? It's kind of silly to have those expectations of ourselves and of others to just become or just to be the people of faith that we long and ache and work to be. Instead, Paul tells us to practice. There are actual things that we can do to, to practice our way into this new way of living. And that's what we're going to look at together today during this message is we're going to look at some of those ways of practicing this new way of living, but also make some space in, in this message to, to practice them together. First, as gospel citizens, we put into practice this new way of living by resting in Christ's care. By resting in Christ's care. So remember the context. Paul is in prison when he's writing this. And so when we think of that, remember that he's in prison and he writes this. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Did you catch that line? I have learned the secret of being content. What? Sometimes I just read over things kind of quickly and I don't really, like I said earlier, I don't really catch the gravity or the weight of what that really is. How many of us could say that, that we have learned the secret of being content? How does that text, that, that statement land with you? I would love to, to see in the comments, your reflections that, what does that verse kind of kick up in you? Is it encouraging? Is it like, well, that's not me. I'm not there yet. I'd love to hear from you there. But notice Paul's language. I have learned. Contentment didn't just happen in, in Paul's life. He learned it over time. And he practiced it over time. For Paul, the key to contentment was the assurance of Christ's care. He'd seen Christ's care faithful time and time again. And then through that practice of resting in that, he was able to learn what it means to be content. Paul's so convinced of God's presence and care in Christ that he then calls the Philippians to rejoice, to celebrate, he encourages them, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We see that that is a reoccurring theme in scripture. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
because he cares for you. Since my senior year of college, I've, I've navigated anxiety as a part of my life. Sometimes there are seasons where it's really intense and it just takes everything in me to just kind of keep going through. And then sometimes there are seasons where it's more manageable and it's, it's not like it's active part of my life. So it ebbs and flows for sure. For people who deal with anxiety in any kind of chronic way, reading Don't Be Anxious can feel a little bit like telling someone with another chronic illness or disease, like diabetes, like, hey, just produce more insulin, right? Like, thanks. Thanks for the tip. That's super helpful. I don't think that Paul is addressing anxiety disorders in this passage. People who regularly, regularly struggle with anxiety um, may need to be more diligent and create a care plan and, and a network of support as we seek to w- live well with our condition and our day-to-day reality, just like those with other chronic health issues. But I think the deeper invitation of this text, the deeper thing that Paul's trying to get the Philippians to see, is not just to stop being anxious, but rather to practice resting in Christ's care. I remember one particular day standing in my parents' driveway and talking with my dad, and I was really worked up about something. There was, I think, probably some decision I needed to make, and my mind was just running with all the what-ifs, and my image of God was tangled up in fear. I was so heavy with worry and questions and doubts and, and all the things. My dad likes to call this lovely quality of mine getting caught in the hamster wheel. Anyone else know what that hamster wheel feeling is like? He asked me something that day that has been such a game changer for me in seeking to live this, seeking to practice this new way of living, of resting in Christ's care. He said this, Hannah, do you believe that God cares about this? I'm your dad, and if you were to tell me something that was really precious to you or something that was really important to you, don't you think I would hold that with great care? I'm just a guy. How much more is God's care? That question, do you think God cares about this? Man, do I think that God cares about this? What would change if I actually believed that? What worries are clamoring for your focus today? Or maybe even as you're watching the service today, there's still just kind of this gnawing distraction in the back of your mind, something that's stressing you out or a decision you have to make or or just a heavy burden that you're carrying that's kind of keeping you on the hamster wheel. What worry are you carrying today? What anxiety is present in your mind today? Do you believe that God cares about that? And what would change if you did? So like I've been saying, the, the, the theme of this message is to put it into practice. So rather than just talk about this new way of living and just talk about the, these ideas, because we're online, we kind of have this cool opportunity to actually be able to, to practice some of these things right now during the service together. So you're going to have a moment right now to reflect on that question with God. We'll have that question put up on the screen and some music playing for you to just take a couple seconds right now to think through these questions. What worry is your heart carrying today? 
and then to ask yourself, do I believe that God cares about this? And what would change if I did? And then as we come back together, I invite you to to end by praying this simple prayer with me. God, thank you that I can trust you with this. And you can say this or you can fill in the blank with whatever it is that's kind of rumbling around in you today. God, thank you that I can trust you with this. God, thank you that we can trust you with all of our cares. As gospel citizens, we put into practice this new way of living by resting in Christ's care. Next, as gospel citizens, we must account for the best in one another. We must account for the best in one another. Looking back at the text in verse eight, that phrase to think about is actually an accounting word. So it means to to account for, to take into account or to reckon, to calculate, to, to consider. We are urged in this passage to actively consider, to take into account the good, the beautiful, the true, the substantial in everything and in everyone. Throughout this series, we've been talking about how the way that we see impacts the way that we think and the way that we think impacts the way that we live. It's all interconnected. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to do this 10-day backpacking trip with four four good friends. We went around um, the base of Mount Rainier up in Washington. It's called the Wonderland Trail. It's a lovely, lovely experience. I went with my friend Beth, who's a longtime friend from volleyball, my friend Sarah from college, and then her boyfriend at the time, Tim. It was actually Sarah and Tim's like, are we going to get engaged kind of backpacking trip. So no pressure, right? <laughs> they, are, they are married now. They live in Nashville. So, so rest assured, we're all good there. So Sarah and I are both leader types, and we're both strategic thinkers and kind of like strong-headed, like things have to be done a particular way. And even more so with backpacking, every backpacker kind of has their own like little hacks and way of doing things that are pretty particular to them. And so you can imagine that Sarah and I had, you know, a little bit of a, of a struggle that, that started to emerge throughout the trip, especially, I mean, 10 days is a pretty long time to be without a shower and without any of your kind of creaturely comforts. And especially, it wasn't amazing weather. And so after a few nights of just all night downpours and then some days where it was just like miles and miles of uphill sections, we were starting to get a little worn out. It's one of the great things about backpacking is that it brings out the best in you and it's all these awesome experiences, but then it also kind of brings out the worst in you and you can't really hide that very well from people that you're sharing a tent with. And so I don't remember exactly what kind of pushed us over the edge of this kind of quiet power struggle that we were having. I think it had something to do with like who was gonna pump water after setting up camp that night or something like that. I can't quite remember. But what I do remember is journaling that night, just like so frustrated and and hurt. We just were kind of hiding behind these walls and kind of armored up, self-protecting from each other and and just being disconnected is just miserable. And so I remember just being like, God, how are we going to find our way through this? And and what is that going to look like? And we still have a couple more days and yada, yada. So 
The next morning, after some alone time, Sarah is comes and approaches me, and she hands me this little note, and I'm like, my heart starts beating faster, like, oh my gosh, what is this note going to say? And I open it up after she walks away, and in the note, I find a list of things that Sarah loves about me and things that she values about our relationship. As you can imagine, reading that, the wall started to dissolve, just kind of pierced through the armor I was wearing. And then from that place, we were actually able to have a conversation about what was really going on and how can we get on the same team and start working together. In her note, Sarah was being a gospel citizen. Sarah was practicing accounting for the best in me. She was accounting for the best in us. Underneath all the mess, there is a good and beautiful world that God has made, and it's God's intentions, it's God's plan to restore it. He's working to redeem it in Christ. And as gospel citizens, that that gets to be our work too. We get to partner with God in that. I just really believe that that is central to the heart of the gospel, that God is working to restore this good world that God made. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to heal it, to save it, to, to bring out the best in it, to restore it. On the cross, when Jesus had every reason and every right to see the worst in humanity, do you know what he did? He prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even in our worst, Jesus accounts for our best. We see a bit of this getting played out in verses 2 and 3, where Paul urges Yodia and Syntyche to behold one another in Christ, that you are gospel citizens, you are sisters, you are dearly loved. He asks the community to come alongside them and support them because sometimes seeing the best in one another can be hard, especially when we're kind of feeling wounded or suspicious or angry or afraid. But please hear me, New Hope. We have to be for each other. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our real enemy actually starts to win if we start to fight against each other instead of fighting for one another. I think this is especially important during this time of physical distancing because in that distance, we can start to let our narratives of fear and hurt and suspicion all of that stuff can kind of start to get louder. And also, we're spending even more and more time with a few people, too, during our stay at home. And so that kind of has its own set of challenges with that. But it's just easier to write one another off or believe the worst. We must practice accounting for the best. Now, as gospel citizens, we're not urged to keep fighting for, keep pursuing relationships that are toxic or abusive or unhealthy. Boundaries and justice are a part of grace. But it's bitterness bitterness and judgment. That stuff is going to erode our hearts. We can behold someone with grace-healed eyes and still have very firm boundaries with them. 
If you're rumbling with that work of forgiveness, a couple of years ago, we did a a teaching series on forgiveness. It's really all about what it is and what it isn't and and what does this life of grace actually look like? So if if that's the work you find yourself in, I encourage you to go to our website on our teaching page and to, to find that and check it out. My question for you, who are you struggling to love today? Who do you find yourself having conversations with in your head, getting fired up about over Facebook, ruminating about? Might you grab a little sticky note or open up the note app on your phone and and make a list? Account for the good, the true, the substantial, the beautiful in them. Now, I'll be honest. Sometimes where I'm at, and my emotions can be real big sometimes, that even that is just like too much for me. Like I can't, I can't even, I'm not able to see that. So I want to share with you another practice that's been super helpful for me of just that first step of trying to, to open my heart back up to somebody. It's just a simple prayer. Sister so-and-so, beloved of God. Brother so-and-so beloved of God. As I just practice bringing that person to mind and and sort of holding them in that truth about them, I notice my heart start to get untangled a bit from the comparison or the jealousy, the hurt or the anger, the pride, whatever it is that my heart is kind of tangled up in around that person, I find it starts to loosen a little bit. As I behold that person in truth, I'm able to receive the peace and the presence of God in fresh new ways. So once again, we're going to have the opportunity to practice this way of gospel living right now during during the service. So I'm going to give you another moment to invite God to bring someone to mind who you're struggling to love or who you're struggling to, to behold in grace. Take these few seconds, this moment, to, to either make a list about them, the good and the true, the beautiful things that you, that you see in them. Or maybe you're not there yet and you can, do, you can practice those simple prayers that I was just saying to. We'll have them come up on the screen of just sister, beloved of God, brother, beloved of God. As gospel citizens, we must account for the best in one another. We must put into practice seeing ourselves and others and our circumstances the way that Jesus sees. So this way of living, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Even as I wrote this message, I was just so aware of the ways that I fail to live out this gospel life that I believe, but just struggle to consistently live. And I can get overwhelmed and get caught in this cycle of try harder, give up. Try harder, give up. That's not the kind, that's just bondage. That's not what God wants us to live in. A couple of weeks ago, I was kind of in one of these try harder cycles and just kind of revved up and I went for a walk over on Mount Tabor near where I live and about halfway through the walk so I was just in the trees and oh, could just kind of get that expansiveness of creation 
I had this picture come to mind of a stationary bicycle, you know, the ones that are in a home or a cycle class or something, where you're pedaling, 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 but not going anywhere. And as that picture came to mind, I was like, oh, God, what's that? And I just sensed these words, Hannah, let's get off the try harder bike and let's walk forward together in grace. Let's walk forward together in grace. This is that paradox. We are accepted and loved today. You are accepted and loved today, exactly as you are. And yet God is so for our flourishing and so for his kingdom come and being expressed on earth as it is in heaven. It's a way of practice and a way of grace. It's not a way of trying harder and giving up. His grace is sufficient for us and his power is made perfect in our weakness. It's in this very place of becoming, of surrender that God can actually do God's best work. It's in that place of becoming where we can sit down at the piano bench or show up in our lives again today and look to Jesus and say, hey, I trust that you know the way. Can you show me? just how to practice today.